Welcome to the Creative Condition Podcast, the show where I, Ben Talon, illustrator and writer, invite people from the creative industry and far beyond to share their story of creativity. Both the nature and the nurture, the chaos and the calm. Creativity is a fundamental pillar of human happiness, something I'm increasingly fascinated by and so often misunderstood. So little by little, I hope to build an archive of fascinating stories, experiences and tips to help you maximise yours. The show is supported by Illustration X. Go and take a look at their incredible global range of illustration and animation portfolios now at illustrationx.com. If you like the music for the show, go and listen to Dirty Freud over on Spotify and all good music platforms now. Today I'm trying something a little different. I am responding to an audience question based around a creative problem. It's something that I think might make for a nice series of regular episodes to break up the guest shows, but I need your feedback on that to gauge whether that is something that I will carry forward. But for now, ahead of Christmas, I hope you enjoy this new question-based episode. Hello and welcome to the show. My name is Ben Tal and this is the Creative Condition Podcast. I hope I find you well. It's still raining on my roof as per the last episode. Um, It's actually been nice for a couple of days in between. So I'm not just going to sit here and whinge about the weather, but that's how you find me with a cup of tea in the studio, a few days removed from Christmas. And after the last guest episode which was a very successful well appreciated one with Muragaya coming back to the show for the third time to continue the arc of what seems to be a wonderful series of regular questions I thought I'd wind us down for Christmas with a little autonomous episode where I am going to respond to an audience problem I thought it might be a really nice format because well here's why so the creative condition book is coming out in March 2024. Thank you to a lot of you guys who supported me on the Kickstarter to make that happen. Um, And what's happened is throughout this entire writing process, I have accidentally and through circumstantial connections and through serendipity and all the other ways you could describe this accidental organic process of writing a 120,000 word book, is I have painted a picture broad strokes there are details but i have painted a picture of creativity and that's to say that there are 39 i think 39 chapters in this book and each of them explores an aspect of creativity right so there's the unconscious is covered in there there's dreams touched upon within that chapter on the unconscious and what happens in our brains when we sleep there's a chapter called dirty energy which is about mischief and the negative emotion spectrum and that's part of a broader look at adversity as a major driver of creativity there's the personality there's environment there's um there's so much there's no good me sitting here listing the entire chapter outline but you get what i'm saying i have given myself this structure within which i think i have covered most aspects of creativity human creativity and the creative process um and what that has got me thinking is i'd love to try moving next year into a space that involves more consultation or I don't know how to frame it, coaching, creative counselling, however you want to bracket that, 
helping people to solve their problems within the sphere of human creativity. So I talked to Peleg Top on the show a number of episodes ago and Peleg describes himself as a coach for accomplished creatives at a crossroads. And I love that because we creativity right is an extension of self it's 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 how we filter the world around us our experiences in life and then we regurgitate them right in a in a form doesn't matter what that form is it could be a verbal joke it could be a drawing it could be a renaissance painting it could be a hip-hop track it's it it doesn't start and end within artistry but it is about making something of of our experience of the world and and representing that um, in a way that other people can digest it, right? So I I loved that process. That was one of the biggest joys of writing this book was articulating and putting some order and some logic and a bit of a roadmap together from all these ideas that have been ping-ponging around my brain since I started to, to work with creativity way back at, you know, well, formally back at art college, but prior to that in my general life. So what it's given me is this kind of, you know, I, I can go to these these chapters and these these things and these factors and, and I've got this structure. So what I thought would be fun when I stumbled across a question the other day on X or Twitter, whatever you want to call it, was to respond to such a question and to see and to test myself, so to, to reach for this framework that I've created and see if I can in some way help and advise because that's what I've gleaned from the 200 plus episodes of this podcast and all the work and the research and the study and the observations that I've been making since I started interviewing or exploring the idea of human creativity. Um, there's got to be some value in that. So I want to test myself and see if I can help people through what might become a new series of episodes within the Creative Condition podcast. I'd love to know if that sounds any good to you guys and if that's something you'd be interested in listening to because I don't want to go down a path where you're all just kind of going, oh, no, shut up. Like, we don't want to hear you rambling on. We want guests. We want you to ask guests questions. If that's the case, that's fine. I can take it. I've got an iron chin. I'm used to rejection in this industry. But I would love your feedback. I would love to know if this is a format that you think is cool because what I do feel the show lacks is audience participation. Now I'd love to do this as a long-form response to one question or one idea. What I would also like to introduce to the show is listener questions. So I would love to just browse through my social media and pick up a few questions and answer a handful of them on each episode, whether that's at the top of the show or the back end of a show, let's say after the guest interview. I think it'd be really cool. There's a number of podcasts that I listen to, uh, you know, within sport, within art, within pop culture, where the host response to a mailbag of questions and I think it's a lovely format I think it it welcomes the audience in in a way that isn't just about me presenting them with a guest interview or an angle and then letting them work with that or not work with it I think it would be lovely to have some back and forth between me and you guys so again does that sound good I'd love to know a lot of this is going to be shaped by the listenership so please do come back at me with ideas for this sorry so we could say that it's a bit unprofessional to do this but we're closing in on Christmas so I'm winding down and I'm uh, relaxed today so oh that's cool 
<laughs> Big thank you to the founders of Art of the Show Illustration X, uh, who have been ever the great supporter, particularly through these tumultuous times with things like AI coming on the horizon. As an agency, they have been very, um, you know, in each of the monthly kind of newsletters that go out to all the represented artists, myself being one of them, they've been very reassuring about, you know, AI is not yet mugging us it's not ripping off our work it's the commissioners still want the human process they want to come to us they want our ideas they want our artistic process and it's been very cool and they've been leading they've been a leading voice in terms of intellectual property laws and pushing for for tight legislation on ai so it doesn't ruin our industry and i think that's really cool they work hand in hand with the likes of former show sponsor the association of illustrators the society of artists agents and they're very um keen to be a forerunner for 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 protecting us from that and i think that's really exciting so uh, do go and check out their global roster of illustrators and artists over at illustrationx.com and a big thank you for their ongoing support in what next year is going to be the let me think 16 17 18 19 20 i think it's going to be the eighth year of supporting this show they were the founding sponsor they helped me get it off the ground so massive gratitude to them do go and check them out so let's get into this question then i hope you enjoyed previous episodes by the way with Murugaya and with christine pizzo from design it if you've got some catching up to do christmas is going to be your chance this is going to be the last episode of 2023 i'm going to be back first week of the new year with a brand new all singing all dancing episode but i am quite energized by this idea this format so let's get to it so the question came from stephen cardwell and it wasn't direct to me it was a it was a post on x slash twitter um that he asked and i thought oh I, I was ready at the keyboard i was about to respond and then i realized there was no way i could answer that in one tweet but i did think that it would make for a lovely long form ramble so here i am and the question from Steve, and I don't know whether it's a personal question, I think it was, um, it said, designers, if you found yourself in a bad place in life, your previous work was good, but old and tired, and your only way back was to create a new folio of personal, non-client work, how would you approach that work so that it felt valid, given that it's not client work? So I got excited about this because this is a, something that I'm relatively well versed in. I've built a lot of my career on self-initiated work. Now I respect the fact that as an illustrator, perhaps it's more conducive to personal work than it is for graphic design. But I, I don't know if it is. I don't think it is. I think anything that's visual communication can only benefit from our own ideas and our personality because it's absolutely built on that. You know, when we create for a living, it's an extension of self. Now I know there are degrees of separation because some people have tighter guidelines to adhere to for their clients than others. Um, some people have less time than others, less money, but um, what I do want to preface before I get into this is that it is really important to acknowledge the fact that we all have to get by under capitalism and we each have different circumstances in which we must learn to make the space for creativity. I can't do that for everyone, so I'm not going to try and do that. I don't know Steve's circumstances, I can't know them, and I don't think it would particularly benefit me right now for this podcast to know them. So it's going to be quite general. I'm going to look at the activators and creativity, and I'm going to give personal previous experiences, observed experiences, to try and offer some advice for the position in which he finds himself. Um, I do believe that you know all of what I'm about to suggest is possible no matter how hard it might be within your life circumstances. You know, I'm a, I'm a recent 
twin parent my kids are three at the moment and i'm only just emerging from the earliest shitstorm of bad nights and constant demands and that ain't gonna change you know i speak to friends with kids who are way older like 9 10 11 who have every weekend dominated by clubs and, and activities and all that so i know this is here to stay point being i have to find the way that i can structure my time spent making and creating to benefit from that that you know from those restrictions from those um from that scarcity you know i don't have the luxury that i once had of working well into the evening or on the weekends like i can't do evenings or weekends anymore i have to tell my clients up front that that's the case and that if they're not going to get me stuff with time to structure it without working weekends and evenings too bad because i just can't do it you know i have two little people who need me at all times so we each have different circumstances i don't know steve's i kind of don't want to know the circumstances for the episodes that i'm going to do along these lines if i go into like a consultation slash one-on-one coaching role then i absolutely will benefit from knowing that and i will be able to ask those direct questions and have a one-on-one conversation that's different so this is kind of a pilot this is almost like a here's a thing one tweet bosh off you go what can i offer so i hope it works let me know uh, i'd love to hear from you steve if you listen to this uh, i would love to know whether it helps in any way i'd also love to know what i might have missed if i've missed you know if there are any big misses or something you think i could have done better please do let me know i want to learn through this process so don't be shy tell me if i've messed up somewhere or if i could have done something better but anyway let's get into that question so First things first, I think there are a number of reasons why we might end up in this position. Um, Like I said, not not my place to comment on personal life circumstances. Uh, Number one, burnout. Big obvious one. So common. Um, And this, I I found, tends to occur not so much because of hours worked or time applied, but that can play a part, of course but largely because of an imbalance in the use of our creativity. So that's to say that I think if we feel negative, disillusioned, tired of the work that we're creating, then the hours spent can become a factor. But ultimately, I think it's that loss of connection with um, something, some meaning, you know, like meaningful work. That's what I think leads to burnout. That's what I've found personally. If I'm emotionally invested and I get to express myself, I get to use my emotional creativity, then I find that I can work countless hours at high energy in lots of flow states and not be tired on the other end of it because it's just the best buzz. So I think it's down to the nature and the connection with the creativity. So that was the first part of call. I wanted to talk about the within burnout, I think it's really important to look at the balance of emotional and intellectual creativity so this was something i picked up from peleg top who i mentioned at the top of the show uh no pun intended (laughs) he um he said that he found himself because he used to run a design agency and for a time it was great they were successful in terms of they were making money they were they had good clients and things were good they were growing all the time but he just hit a wall and he burned out and he said it was because he didn't have the balance of intellectual and emotional creativity and the way he described that was um intellectual creativity being our client work the the creativity that we do to solve problems on a daily basis for external clients for projects now that's not to say that there can't be 
a, a split. I've been very fortunate in my own career in that I, in that I was very um, bold in my early years in that I wanted to build my brand on my terms. I wanted it to be weird. I wanted it to be quirky. I wanted it to reflect my personality and then I wanted to take it to market. What that's done is meant that I'm not for everyone. So that's resulted in some quiet spells along the way and some twitchy bum times, squeaky bum times. <laughs> it works. Um, but what it also, but the upside of that was that I attracted work that resonated with what I had in that portfolio. Therefore, people came to me for that raw energy, that that voice, that personality, that weird humour. And therefore, I have been able to exercise my emotional creativity in a lot of my work. Now, to define the two, so intellectual is that problem solving, it's that kind of creativity that we do on a daily basis for our clients. Emotional creativity is us expressing ourselves purely. So it's, you know, what do you have to say about the world? What gets you going? What do you hate? What are the injustices? What do you want to scream from the rooftops without the framing of commercial work? That's what it is. That's what emotional creativity is. Now, the way Peleg put it is that we spend the, the vast majority of our time in the intellectual creativity headspace. And when I say burnout, when I've experienced burnout invariably, it plays a part. You know, maybe there's too much client work going on. Maybe I am missing the point, you know, in terms of what does Ben Talon want to say? Where do I want to go? What changes do I want to make in the world? What weird subject do I want to address in my design and my illustration and my podcasts? Um, right now, my my emotional creativity is is very much the purest form of it right now for me is a combination of this podcast and my writing fiction and non-fiction no one's asking me to do that writing no one's challenged me to do it i'm picking topics that i care about you know in non-fiction uh, creativity has become my everything I, I, my stamp that i want to make on the world if there's ever such a thing as a legacy for me i want it to be that i elevated creativity standing in our societies and i helped other people to embrace and understand theirs on the fiction side of things it is my catharsis it is my way of dealing with the insurmountable problems in my life climate crisis um it's the way i observe human behavior on the dog walk and then i channel it into these rich little fiction stories i absolutely adore it it gives me a safe space to go and be emotionally creative so that even if i have a number of weeks and months where i have to only serve the needs of my clients and that isn't doing it for me on an intellectual level sorry on an emotional level it's fine because I've got that fiction. And I find that when you have an outlet, when you have just something, even if it's an hour a week on a personal thing, it helps you to manage all the other stuff that you would ideally not do, was it not for capitalism? So if that makes sense, I think that's the starting point. You have to look, honestly, at the balance of intellectual and emotional creativity. Um, repetition, you know, that's another big evil. It's like... Are you doing the same things that you once did with great illumination and zest? Are you now just doing out of echoes of that? Is it just process now? Is it mechanical? Is it serving you in any way? Because it has to, really. You know, I know we have those bills to pay, but if that's all you ever do, then you are going to burn out. I think that's what happens to a lot of us. Um, there, this is just a little side note, but there is a physical side to all of this as well. And it's something I wanted to reference. And it's the reason that I've 
talked to Kimberly Wilson on episode 202 and then Zuzana Kawowska on episode 204. Kimberly is a psychologist who specialises in uh, whole body mental health and nutrition. Zuzana is a microbiologist working with machine learning, so AI, to study the gut microbiome. So I talked to both of these because it was only in recent times that I revamped my diet and focused on good eating for an energised mind and creativity. And it's been pretty revelatory for me. It's really changed things. I don't need those naps in the afternoon anymore. I find that I am certainly coming into work in a more positive headspace. So I think you have to think about the body with this as well, but that's just a little side note. It's something I wanted to reference. It's well worth listening to those episodes and considering that in respect of burnout and feeling emotionally lethargic when it comes to creativity. You know, there's there's the age-old common trap of attributing creativity just to some innate gift or simply our minds, whereas actually we are one organism. Mind and body and spirit are all a part of it, so you have to look after all of them, you know. Um, but I've certainly had better recent energy because of a, you know, revamping my diet. Anyway, just a little side note. So number two, so there's burnout. And number t- the other reason, I think, is that is common for feeling this way, like you need a reset, is that you've changed. Your life has evolved, maybe. And so has your relationship with the work that you've been making. So like I said, you know, in terms of echoes, I remember hitting a point myself where I'd got so comfortable with my process that I could do it without any real, you know, focus applied to it. The drawing became so easy for me and so process driven and so did the editing process that I was very much repeating what people were coming to me for but without the same love for the craft or curiosity in the subject matter that I'd had prior that really made it sing. And I noticed it, I started to notice it, and and invariably my clients began to notice it because some of them moved on to new styles. And I know that just happens anyway, but I do think there's resonance in the work that sings to us and the work that we feel is just process. If it's stultified in our minds, if it's just something we're knocking out to tick a box, I believe that that really comes across to our audience. If you want to get metaphysical with it, I, there's a bit in the book where I look at these experiments. Only briefly, but I, I reference experiments where electrons moved differently when they were observed across a room by a person. That's mental. I'm not going to get onto that level with it because I'm not qualified to do so. But I certainly think that the life that goes into work and the, and the energy and the love for it, it comes across without any shadow of a doubt, I think. So, you know, it's all worth considering. But but we do change, and this is the thing. We move through life and we evolve, and our drivers change, our motivations change, our circumstances switch. So if your relationship with the work you've been making has changed, but you're still making the same work, then it is invariably going to lead to some kind of boredom or burnout. Um, we tend to improve technically as the years go by in our efficiency and our craft. But if we don't course correct according to our broader lives then the motivation that inspired that previous work, no matter how great it was, just becomes a parody, doesn't it? Um, I was thinking about this recently, and do you know there's examples in my broader life that I think speak to this? And I think of walking out onto the concourse at Elland Road, I'm a big Leeds United fan, walking out onto the concourse at Elland Road, and 
there are a few buzzes I've had in life that match the feeling of those early years of being able to go watch Leeds United first with my dad and then on my own in my early teenage years. Um, but just walking out and seeing the, that, whether it's the floodlights or the sunshine on the pitch and the players warming up and just that awesome collective shared passion in that stadium, that was that was absolute wizardry as a kid. I still get it to a degree when I walk out, but it is a pastiche of something that once was at the very peak of my life. So I, I would say the same of my love of Blur in my teenage years as a band. Um, you, there's a lot of things that I look, but the, but the pure magic that these things gave me in younger years. Um, I think now it becomes about learning to look for what they mean now. If I, I have to repurpose them and if, I find that their meaning remains only in the past, then I have to be brave and start something new, find new passions, you know. I don't go to watch football anywhere near as much as I did. And I liken it to Christmas in terms of it's the, the sparkle has returned a little bit now that I'm a parent. And I think that when, it's, when slash if I start taking my kids to the football, I think I will live it vicariously. But really, creativity is not all that different you know you have to keep changing and looking for new meaning and, and making sure that the work adapts to follow that I, I also think there's an interesting analogy in looking at bands that once were something so I, I went to the Stone Roses uh, reunion gig in 2012 a fantastic night it was an awesome gig the band were just so brilliant technically they were so proficient the Libertines is another recent example, a band that are still going on and are making music. And it's still fun to see them play, but things have changed. I don't think anyone would deny that. You know, um, other bands, they continually evolve and seem to always have a knack for staying current. And I think that can only come from within. So watching the Roses playing all them hits and, and, and going through the, the, the best of, it's magic. But... It isn't 1989 anymore, and it can't ever be again. So for me, it can't ever be 2008 again when I was building that maiden portfolio, and I felt nervous. I felt like, my God, I, I think I've got the ability to be an illustrator, but look at all those people out there. I have to bring something different to this. So I was, an, you know, I was an angry little fucker. I was creating this kind of politically agitated work, but that was then. And it doesn't mean that I don't have those similar feelings for things now, but I have to find out what those things are now to make it sing in the same way that it did then because I can't ever be that version of myself I was 25 at the time I you know, didn't have any family commitments I had low living costs I was relatively free to make that work and take certain risks what are the risks I can take now because things have changed I've got a mortgage I've got two young twins there's more pressure it doesn't mean I can't be playful but I just have to find ways to do it within that framework um, and I think the band analogy is a good one the Liberties can't ever go back to 2003, 2002, whatever it was when they burst on the scene with up the bracket. That was so zeitgeist, that was so agitated and current and fresh and that's why you get cult bands like the Roses and the Libertines but why they can't ever be that now. They can only ever remind those fans of what was. Do you want to remind your audience of what was, even just last week? I think that Steve Cardwell is in a headspace where he doesn't. I think it sounds like, to me, like he needs to rip it up and start again. We'll get to that in a minute, because there's different ways you have to go about that for the reasons I just mentioned, those life circumstances. Um, I think... So what would I recommend? I think that's where we're up to. I think they're the chief reasons, okay? So burnout, and I think that 
just simply change. So whether you're tired of that work or whether your life and your inspirations have moved on, they're, for me, they're the two big reasons for, for burnout. Um, okay, so some people might be in a position where they need to rip it all up and start again. Maybe that's in the evenings while paying those bills with the work that you seek to change. You might be able to take time in the day for this work, you know, in between projects. That's often where I'm at. I often jump between my client work, hit the deadline, get the progress over, use the next hour or so to work on that thing. You know, that that's a system that I work because I kind of like that high energy bouncing between projects thing. So I find that I'm able to do the two at the same time. But if you're different to me, then perhaps it's something that you have to keep in its own space in the evenings, for example, or on the weekends. Um, in some cases, perhaps you've got some savings. Maybe someone's got some savings. Maybe you've got a few big gigs behind you that give you a little financial security so that you can do some nice rebuilding without distraction. You know, when I started my career, that was the approach that I took. And I did that according to my personality because I knew that if I finished university and I went into battle as a freelancer with only like the scrapings of my overdraft, I would be financially paranoid. I would have been banging on doors in such a desperate way that it would have, it would, I think it would have been self-defeating. So what I did was work full time for two years and I saved up enough to live off for three months. Then I quit my job and I had a three month run at it. So I had, you know, big long weeks. I would spend like seven in the morning till 11 at night. It wasn't uncommon for me. Sometimes stay until early hours in the morning because I was just in love with the fact I could do this all week, every week, even for a finite period. So maybe you've got to do it that way. I don't know. That's for the individual to work out according to their personality and their circumstances. Um, so I think... So the balance, right? So emotional, intellectual, creativity balance. That's the first consideration. What does it look like now? What does it need to be? Because you have to find space for intellectual, um, for emotional creativity. Uh, beware of cynicism. That was something that I made a note on. I've been guilty of self-sabotage on far too many occasions when I've been so tired or disillusioned that I shoot down the idea of good suggestions or you know I, I will be very quick to, to take a negative viewpoint of something so um i'll shoot down the idea of pursuing a new pure creative magic because it feels like such heavy lifting to take what feels like backward steps but i think you have to learn to identify and, and apprehend negative thought spirals and allow no not even allow like force yourself to seek that place where we become inquisitive and curious and energized about making work in response to something that belongs to us that comes from ourselves you know i will caveat i will caveat that by warning that even if you're at a place where you need to rip it up and start again don't bend the lot like don't take any drastic steps like dismissing all of your previous work or you know deleting hard drives or anything like that because there will be work in your portfolio that just now you might not ever want to see again but once you start to take bold steps forward that will align, at least in part, with where you are now. So once you rediscover a bit of a magic thread and you create something that's fresh and it's different and it's like, whoa, okay, okay, hang on. If I can get that magic across 20 images, 20 images then suddenly I have a new portfolio that I can take to market and get work that resonates with it. And when you start to feel that, that chase again, that excitement, you will then be able to take 
that new way of seeing, it'll become a lens through which you can reappraise previous work. So just don't fall into that um, trap where because you're in a funk and you've got the brain fog and everything feels like heavy lifting and it feels quite, you know, you feel disillusioned. Don't hold that lens over all of your previous work because all of that previous work wasn't made in that mindset. And when you get somewhere better and you can turn back and you can hold the new direction over the old one, there will be bits that align that you can take forward. So I think for Steve, for your question, so when you mentioned creating all self-initiated work, I think you'll probably find client work that does align with that. So, you know, okay, put it in a drawer, lock the drawer, but don't bin it all. That's my point. I think that... You know, I'm, I'm, the, I'm the same. It's like I, I've gone through phases recently where I've not rebranded, but I separated Ben Talon into Ben Talon Raw and Ben Talon Refined. I've now got, I've got Talon Type. Um, and there have been times where I've looked at those portfolios and just felt like I needed to rip it up and start again. And I know that feeling and it's not nice. You question your ability, you question whether it's any good, you question even if it is any good technically. Like, if I just hate it, what's the point in it, you know? Well, when I've got to the next stage and I feel like I'm on course again, it's amazing how some of that really early work will find a new life and it still has a place. And like I said, like with the Stone Roses and Libertines thing, it doesn't mean that I can make that work again and go back to that former self, but it might have a place in that portfolio, you know? So just be cautious about that because when we get in those negative thought spirals and those folks, everything feels shit and like hard work, you know? So that's just a little a little thing that I wanted to get in there. Um, I saw some discourse within the conversation following Steve's question on X about the validity of self-initiated work. And believe me, I can assure you wholeheartedly that personal work is every bit as valid. And arguably your biggest asset in setting the course that is right for you. I would hang my career on that uh, because my career has been built on that. It really has. Like, what do you want to say? This goes back to the emotional creativity thing. What do you feel strongly about right now? What's your thing? You know, remove work, remove clients, remove trends, remove what people are going to like and dislike. What amuses you? What are you reading, watching, listening to? And what quirk that makes you an individual within your tightest social circles, even if it's just you? Like, what quirk can be harnessed to make that new work sing? Because that's what it will live and die on. That's what will make it special. Um, what? And here's another one. What would your deathbed self wish you'd paid attention to right now? Because ultimately, and I, and I can't remember where I first came across this, but I thought it was amazing. The deathbed and the childhood selves are the only people you should be reporting to. They're your superiors now when you're creating self-initiated work and you're building something from the ground up. Because the subject and the form of the work is entirely under your control. That's the glory of self-initiated work. So choose selfishly. And that soul, like I said, will absolutely live in the work because it always does. I'm going to give you a personal example. This isn't about me, but I do think some of my experiences have validity here. And this is why... Do you know what? Give me one second and I will look back because I did an episode about this. Um self-initiated uh do you know what i might have to put this one in the no here it is episode 148 the self-initiated creative project showcase there were two parts um that i did 
and I covered a number of people doing personal work around this. There might be another one. I'll drop it. I'll, I'll, I'll DM you it if I find it. But there's another episode where I really got into this and I went through personal work and talked about its value. But here's one. So in 2019, I finally brought to a close a body of work that I'd been making in collaboration with Andrew Cotterill, who I've become friends with. Now, Andrew is a music photographer, and forgive me if you've already heard this story on the show, because I will have talked about it. But essentially, I moved to London. I felt a little bit lost and lonely in my first few months because I was working out of a bedroom above, you know, some betting shops and a takeaway chicken shop in the in the rougher part of Bermondsey down by Millwall Stadium, South Bermondsey, not the, the gentrified bit. I loved it, by the way, down there because it was down and dirty and there was a lot of characters. But but I was essentially, I'd, I'd moved from Manchester where my network was. All my family and friends were up north, apart from a handful and my girlfriend in London. Um, but I was a bit at a loss and I'd get to the afternoon and I'd feel like, what am I doing? Like, I'm, I'm, I feel detached from my creativity. I feel, you know, burned out. So what I would do is go to pubs and work and cafes to try and get to different parts of London. And I was working in the Admiral Hardy in Greenwich where Andrew Cotterell's photography was on the walls. And I didn't know it was Andrew Cotterell's. But I would go in there and I would love, in particular, the Jarvis Cocker image that was up there and the Plan B one. And I met an art director friend, Sam Price. If you've read Champagne and Wax Crayons, Sam is featured as one of the guest voices in that book. But Sam was an art director and the big issue at the time. And I worked with him quite a lot. So we met for a pint in the afternoon and I mentioned the work on the wall that I loved. And I, at the time I was building my hand lettering talent type portfolio. And Sam said, oh, it's Cotterill. We used to commission him and the big issue quite a lot. Uh, I can put you in touch if you want, because I'd said that I wanted to work with that kind of image that was rough and ready and it had soul and Andrew's work very much had that. Now, Andrew and I met for a beer in in, uh, in blah, 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 Stratford. And, you know, I didn't know. I, I kind of expected to get that response of, no, why would I want your mess on my images? You know, because Andrew's work are very much accomplished images already. But he's a lovely guy. And he, and he felt a little about his work, Steve, like you kind of do about some of yours by the sounds of it. I think he felt like it, it was done and he'd done it and he was doing that again. So he said to me, look, this is cool, this is exciting, this this will give new life to all work, so let's do it. So Andrew gave me a hard drive of all these images from his archive with everybody from music. There was Chuck D on it, there was The Strokes, The Libertines, Demon Albarn, um, FKA Twigs, Grace Jones, um, Florence Welch, it was amazing. I ran away with that like a kid in a sweet shop. And we started a five-year process of a body of work where I really wanted to explore and celebrate the identity that make each of those musicians special to their audience. So again, it was the Libertines factor that I mentioned earlier and the Stone Roses factor. I wanted to explore that identity and that pure creativity through the way that I treated the images by using their quotes and their lyrics in my handwritten style over Andy's images because Andy had undoubtedly unlocked something in each of those subjects that was real and authentic and I had to capture that in a way that would make their audience go yes and make the artist themselves go yes you've nailed it you've got it you've got to the core of it point being I spent five years on this work for no money you know this was self-initiated this was absolutely just an exploration of a love of what andrew had done and what these musicians represented spent a lot of time on that i spent entire weeks on that sometimes without getting paid there's so much guilt that comes with that and there's so much self-doubt and questioning of, of whether that's a worthwhile use of time 
ultimately we got five years down the road because we each had you know other commitments commercial work and everything else that's why it took so long and also i just wanted to indulge in that take a long run at it and it grew with me um eventually we put together 50 images we did a big show in covent garden we did a big show in manchester we made a newspaper from the work and we stuck it in our portfolios that's where it ended but the response to that work was mind-blowing we had so many cool people come down to that show in covent garden and then in manchester at the design festival up there um that it was just amazing and i remember having some tricky conversations with andy because we'd spend about three grand of our money each to make that show happen you know all the printing costs and the hanging and, and everything else um and when you do that and you're not well particularly well off which neither of us were we both suffered quiet spells around that time there's a certain degree of nerves that comes with that but i always wanted to try and reassure andrew without having the results to do so that this would pay off somewhere along the line in some way you know we were going to get something out of this you can't put so much love into a body of work and it not pay off and what happened was it happened quite quickly for me took a little longer for Andy but he eventually got there he was commissioned off the back of um, that project a connection that he'd met on the opening night of the show to shoot Idris Elba um, which actually reconnected him with Idris because he'd grown up in the same part of London and they're a similar age so it was this lovely story and he got commissioned by a big mag in America I think it was Men's Journal which I think unfortunately is finished now but it was a way better payday than it is for UK editorial it got this amazing shoot out of Andy he, he loved it and that was about two years after the fact so I remember him calling me and sort of wanted to say I wanted to say thanks kind of thing because you did say to me at the time that it would pay off and it has and I'm sorry for doubting that and I said we're talking about of course we we always doubt it don't apologize there's nothing to apologize for but for me it happened quite quickly and what happened was it got me my biggest commercial project today and it was Ben Lambert from PB Creative, who are just around the corner from the, the stance shop in Covent Garden, which no longer exists, sadly, but they had this massive basement space. And Ben popped in on his lunch break, and he loved the work, and he bought a Damon Albarn print from us because we shared a love of Albarn's work. And we just had this big conversation, and throughout that conversation, he told me that one of the clients for PB was Lynx, or Axe, if you're outside the UK, um, the deodorant and shower products brand. And he just saw something that he couldn't put his finger on in the work that he felt he could put, could bottle and take to his client and get them to buy into that direction so that we could at least put some test work together for a full packaging rebrand. And I thought he was, you know, blowing smoke up my ass at the time. Lo and behold, he was true to his word. He got me my biggest commercial project to date. I think we did about 75 variants together. And that was amazing to me that this uber personal project hooked my biggest commercial project today. And, but I always believed in that. And that's why I've done these episodes in the past about personal work, because I think the purity that you're able to put into it, it just states your intent. And I think if you find a balance in your portfolio of a balance between the emotional and the intellectual, then at least it states your intent as well as shows off what you can and have done. Do you know what I mean? You've got to find that balance. So that's what happened, and it got me that biggest gig in the same way that a self-initiated campaign for Calm, the campaign against living miserably, about mental health and the emotional benefits of artistic expression, because that was something I was very passionate about at the time and have only become more passionate about since. That accidentally got me into interviewing 
and therefore this podcast and my first book and all these other side effects so I think that's what happens when you make this work so don't get me wrong very few of us have the luxury of sitting there all week every week paying our bills while making the work we wanted to make when we were art students but I do think that there's wonder in that and there's something you have to try and find you know you have to find space in your week to do exactly that um so the people you're looking to work with whether you know who they are or not yet i think they want to be surprised i think they want to be shocked and moved by work with soul and identity which comes in self-initiated work because commercial work can can certainly house emotional creativity but it is in this self-initiated work that you will state your unfiltered intent and register with those who can bring great projects to your door so i think seek discomfort I think we get comfortable, all of us do. I know I do. I constantly have to check myself for that and course correct. Uh, hitting a certain level of proficiency means that we enter something of an, an autopilot space. It's here when we should challenge ourselves with self-initiated work that falls within the circle of competence, but freaks us out a little bit. You have to feel that kind of uncertainty again and like, oh my God, like, you know, what is this? Is it right? Is it good? I think that's there for a reason. It's there to make sure that we take it seriously. But we that that discomfort is really healthy, you know. I've just created two posters for my talk. I'm doing a live podcast with Stefan Sagmeister at our festival in Barcelona in uh, in April, April fifth next year, and I almost wobbled and binned off the posters because. I pushed myself out of my comfort zone by taking Stefan's mugshot, his press shot, photocopying it so it was really lo-fi, and then trying it, blowing it up at all different scales. And the idea was Stefan was keen to talk about long-term thinking because that's the that's the bedrock of his last sort of five years worth of projects. So his book Now Is Better is about perspective, about looking, pulling back the lens from this kind of bubble social media world of doom and gloom that we've got now and looking at the ways in which the human race has evolved and advanced and got better over the history of mankind, you know, so the gradual er eradication of sickness and the fact that, you know, there are something like 80-odd democratic countries in the world now as opposed to what used to be just one America. Um, and it's that idea, so he wanted to talk about that. So my concept for the poster was to shoot through Stefan's cut-out eyes on these bigger images down like a little tunnel to where there would be a smaller image where he's in the distance to try and capture that concept of long-term thinking. And invariably, when the, the photography wasn't going right, because I'm not a photographer and, you know, I wasn't quite hitting the right notes, I almost scrapped it and started again and just went back to the learned behaviour of painting over the image as it was. But in the end, I cracked it and I got a couple of cracking little images. But then I got that feeling of walking into a crit when I had to send it to Stefan because I wanted to get his approval. I didn't have to, but I wanted to out of respect because I'm interviewing an industry legend. And you know what? Lo and behold, he absolutely loved it big thumbs up loved the image and there we have two pieces of work that make me feel passionate again about my creativity but i had to get i had to work through that fear you know what i mean um and this podcast has always been a great space for me to to make work that had context and kind of had a client so steve this goes back to your validity question if you find yourself struggling with just making work that sings to you 
without a client, why don't you make your own vehicles? Because that's what I did with the Calm Project. And that's what I've always been doing. That's what I did with Quenched Music in Manchester. We built the facade of Quenched Music so that it enabled us to flex our creativity in a way that people could get on board with because they understood it. And that's been useful to me. That's what this podcast does. It gives me a client. You know, it gives me Off Festival as a client. However, I didn't have to make a poster for Off Festival. They've already got their own channels to promote our talk. So by doing that, I was using the veneer of something cool that people could go, oh yeah, it's that thing you did for Off Festival. So maybe you need to do that. I think that's something worth exploring for you. Um, Now here's something that I found I'm reading like every other creative person under the sun I'm reading Rick Rubin's book at the moment The Creative Act which is magnificent by the way and there's a chapter called The Opposite and here's a little excerpt that I thought was relevant about that feeling of discomfort and he says the opposite is true for any rules you accept of what you can and cannot do as an artist of what your voice is and isn't of what's required to do the work and what you don't need it would be worthwhile to try the opposite. And I thought that was amazing because he uses the example of a sculptor who believes that the work they make has to exist in the material world. Why not try it in a digital space, a digital-only space? You know, that that's his point. It's like, you might go there and you might fail. But even if you do, you will pick up references and you will inform your thought process and your considerations with what's possible. And that also goes back to what Andy Sandoz said to me about technology. He said, you don't need to learn how to code. You don't need to learn to use AI, but you have to be aware of it because if you're aware of it and you inform your creative process with that thinking, you will be better because you will make better decisions. That's what Rick's saying here. And I think it's very, very valid. So that's what I meant by discomfort. Um, And like I said, that, that danger with technical proficiency is that we feel frightened by returning to that educational voyage of fucking up a lot to find out our threads, you know? Creativity is never linear. That feeling is valuable and despite frustration along the way, it it breaks moulds, personal moulds, you know? It gets you back to unlearning behaviours and that's something that's really important for all of us. Even, let's say this goes well for you, let's say you break out of whatever's giving you dissatisfaction now and you find a new way and it's amazing and it energises you. I think you always still need to course correct. You need to check in with yourself every so often. Only you can determine how often that is. Um, and and you need to break that mould again. You know, you need to keep feeling fresh about it. So the answers might take time. And it might be small steps. But what you're speaking of is really not a pleasant feeling. So I think you have to work hard to, to, to keep it away. So to me, it's worth... It is worth smashing things up to see what we can reshape. You know, it's like I am not afraid to try hard typography if that's what works for a project, even though I'm not a graphic designer and it always gives me discomfort. But I'm very happy to turn to the experts in my field to to see if that works, you know, if it works. And, I, and again, to go back to the off poster about Stefan, I used their logo. So when, I, when I'd got Stefan's AOK on the poster and I sent it to Hector Ayuso, who, who is the founder and runs off festival, he came back and said, I absolutely love it. Um, one little suggestion, get rid of the off logo. I think it's going to be better if you use all hand lettering on this one. So I took, his, I took it on board. I actually disagreed at first. I thought, no, nah, the balance of hard type and hand lettering is cool. It gives it currency. It gives it the official stamp of the festival. I tried it. It worked. I went, cheers, Hector. It was, you know, infinitely better. 
evidently immediately very happy about that so but you've got but i had to go there to try and find out you know so i think it's important to do that try the opposite of all those things you know and take away what works um you might end up just coming back to what you've always done but i'm sure it will have a different voice because of your willingness to go and try new things you know next year feels like a really big year for me if I'm honest, I'm feeling fucking terrified because the new book's coming out and I have to suddenly get back to going out on the road and promoting the thing. And, you know, I've, I've, I'm trying to move to a place where I'm equal parts artist slash illustrator and the, the, the bloke who does the creative condition, the head of it, you know, uh, to go out there and claim to be an authority and in creativity. Phew. That feel to me, coming from Yorkshire, where you were sort of encouraged to get back in your lane a little bit, that feels like a Billy Big Bollocks move, you know? It's like, really? You're going to go out there and call yourself an expert in creativity? But expert's a strong word, but I am getting to a place where I feel like I've got some authority in it now. I've done this show for seven years and written books and, and spoke to hundreds and hundreds of people about it. You know, 10 years of study and practice has given me enough confidence to wade into that unknown. But I do feel a bit terrified about it next year because, I'm again, it's well out of the comfort zone. Um, and it isn't that illustration isn't working for me anymore because it absolutely is. But the structure of my overall practice, it needs a revamp. And I, as a human, have changed. So I have to acknowledge that and act accordingly. You know, sitting in my garden studio alone waiting for commissions and watching commissions get agreed only to fall through, which has happened a lot these last two years because of a volatile market and economy, it's really frustrating and it has knocked my confidence in a big way at times. And it's There's been times when I've wanted to kind of walk out the door and go get a job and not come back, but I can't do that because I'm not qualified in anything else. <laughs> Everything I'm good at, there's no paperwork to back it up, you know. Um, but that frustration isn't healthy. And knowing that I can help people understand and embrace their creativity and strengthen the place of creativity in our society, that gives me a huge thrill. And I think you have to dare to dream when it comes to that and follow that thread. So I cannot bear the idea of not driving in a direction that feels so good. You know, like I said, two kids, a mortgage. Um, my risks do have to be somewhat calculated. You know, I can no longer quit a job and, and save up and, and, and just do what I want. Those days have gone. So it has to be well, the risks have to be well-timed. And I just know that stagnation would not be good for me as a father, as an artist, as a husband, as a human. I'd be a right dick, quite frankly, if I was fed up with my work and I didn't love it like I once did. So when I start to feel any kind of discontent, I have to move on it. Um, you know, the book has taken two years to write, just to write, ten years to research. That, that's a lot of time without any immediate financial gain that comes with guilt, cost, uncertainty, um, all of which have to be managed. But ultimately, my emotional creativity is something I've always prioritised. And by putting it out there, you know, it's, it creates a two-way flow to my work as an illustrator because when I feel good about that, I look more positively upon my illustration work and I want to advance in that too. So it feels alive again because I feel alive again. And I think because I've always made time to make this personal work because I knew I could not be happy if I didn't, then I've always put the hours into taking things forward. And there's been this slow evolution of my practice in accordance to where I am as a person. Um, and what that's done is it's saved me having to kind of rip it up and start again because it's been a gradual transformation over time to the point where some of the early stuff has been weeded out completely. Um, 
So, you know, that guilt time, that guilty time is only time that I would have had to have done in a big block at the end if I'd reached a real point of burnout. So I think you also have to look at your setup. So what is your environment? Is that working? From the people dynamic to the details. So, you know, placement of furniture within your environment. What's on the walls? Do you feel good about being in the space where you spend most of your creative time? If the answer's no, and be honest about it, you have to change it. You know, I miss people. I did a post about this on LinkedIn the other day. I miss studios and social and travel and the change of scene that all that brought. It's something that I need and I have neglected it of late because I've been a new father and I've got this garden studio. So I've spent a lot of time in my head. I will use the creative condition, the, the book coming out and the, the, the evolution of this podcast to address that before my solitude becomes a problem next year. That's very much on my... I know I have to address that. Otherwise, it will infect everything. So what do you need in the long term? Like, Do you know? And if not, you've got to spend time working it out. And what do you need in the here and now? Like, Could you create a dedicated space for the creation of this new work that, that you... Sounds like you need to work, need to make. You know, uh, that might be a spare room. It might be a hired office, as you, if, the, if your financial situation allows. Or... Could it be more liminal spaces, cafes and on public transport? I don't know. Like, I don't, you know, only you can know the work you've got to make. But is it something that is going to benefit from being done in conditions, in restricted conditions and with scarcity? Because they provoke more creative responses that are free from risk of defaulting to known methods and learned behaviours. You know, so observe yourself when it comes to these. Like, how do you create when you've not got all all your right gear? You know, maybe not having all the programs that you use or all the tools that you use in your fixed environment will trigger responses and work that is more becoming of like art school and, and something fresh. And it believe me, it will still have your stamp and it will still have your knowledge and your learned expertise. So none of this time is wasted, no matter how disillusioned you feel about your work. You know, here's a story that I've used in the book. So there's a chapter called Unlearning Behaviours and it's about this sort of psychology. And I opened the chapter by telling a story about every time, and I only realised this in the last year, but every time I'm in Waterloo Station, which is quite often because that's the station that I need to get to from Salisbury where I live. Um, and I also spent a lot of time there when I lived in London. So when I go in the toilets and I head for the urinals in Waterloo Station, I would always go for the far right wall and the third urinal in. And it only occurred to me, after about 15 years of doing this, that I always do that. And it awakened this thought process of how many other behaviours am I defaulting to that could be challenged and could be improved, that I just do because that's what I do. It was a really interesting thought process. And when I mentioned scarcity, there's also um, a chapter that I've, I've, I've used an excerpt from my interview with Graham Wood, um, again, let me just have a quick look since I'm doing this in real time and I'll tell you the episode. But Graham, episode 97, he was a founder of Tomato and Graham's work is really amazing. Uh, a lovely guy too. And he talked about the scarcity and restriction of being in Central St. Martins as a student without too many computers, without all the tools that they would ideally like to have and the responses that created as art students. And it's amazing, and you can really see it 
in that work that still stands the test of time today. Tomato's work still feels cutting edge and ahead of the game. And I think that's because it's got the love of the craft and the scarcity and the sense of possibility and wonder in it, I really do. And um, Simon Dixon talked about this on the second episode I did recently uh, with Dixon Baxi. He, first of all, he pointed to the microphone that I'm sat in front of right now. It's a little Zoom H2N mic, which I'm going to be upgrading soon, actually. But he... You know, he, he was marvelling at the microphone, the way it looked, and it appealed to him in some way, aesthetically. And he talked about what, wondering about what went into that making process, who designed it like this and why, and how he could never know that, and how he should never know that, because that belonged to the designer. But it did resonate with him here and now in the real time. And I think that's the truth about, like, Tomato's work and about what I said earlier about finding that magic within the work. Um, if you do want to go back and listen to those ones, it's episode 77 was the first time I talked to Dixon Maxi, and the second time was episode 180, which is where that part of the conversation came up. But what Simon also talked about was how he's observed that in the face of criticism, when designers feel challenged or like they've taken a knock because someone's criticised the work, that they will often revert back to learned behaviours and their old processes and I've done this so many times when I've sent off let's say a piece of editorial work a sketch or a, or a developed piece of work and I think it's there but in my heart of hearts I know it's not and I'm overriding that instinct and the client comes back and goes it's not quite working can we like you know try another route and what about this and I get that panic and what I often do is go back to my own website and start looking at old work that I like and it's like oh no what are you doing you're falling back on what you have always done and now just do because that's what you do and you aren't thinking about whether it works and Simon talks about that and how it makes people create shit work because they go back to what they've all, you know they've already done whereas if you get into these crits and you talk constructively and you and you pull the positives and you all feel good about cracking a brief then you're far likelier to try new things and go through those processes and what Dixon Baxi do is hold these ignite sessions they call them and this is another thing he talks about on that episode about how they will have things like slam poetry competitions and it forces people to try something new and get out of their comfort zone and because one of their challenges as a big design agency working on briefs that might run for a year is to keep people enthused and excited about the work and to do that you always have to go and find new references and pull things in from outside of like the tried and tested so anyway another thing to consider i think um and Another thing I think is worth considering is what are the what are the short-term things you need to check off? Like, what are your short-term needs? Ben Motter's head, co-founder of Studio BND, who came on the show, we talked at length about ADHD as a person. He has, he's a person who has ADHD, and he talks about how the high reward frequency of being a graphic designer or running a design agency and, and having to solve a lot of creative problems really is really great for a person with ADHD. Whereas if you put him in a situation where he had to study for three weeks for one exam, he would crumble and fall apart. He, would, he couldn't do it. He doesn't have that brain. So he's well aware of that need of high reward frequency. And I think that's really interesting because I have that too. Now, I don't know whether I'm, a, whether I'm ADHD. I haven't had myself tested. I certainly show a lot of traits, but I think we can often show traits that overlap onto a condition and it doesn't necessarily mean that we are that. But for me... I need that high reward frequency too. If I come out of a day where 
I haven't really cracked a brief and we've just gone down a certain path and it hasn't worked and then I have to like down tools and go sort the kids out I'll feel really bad about myself and I'll question my ability and everything so I get where he's coming from and in my earliest years the high frequency of like creating new work for my maiden portfolio and seeing it come together was addictive it was an addictive buzz so I get it so you know do you need that or are you at peace with making a piece of work that takes two months and you might not get that buzz for a long time? I don't know. These are questions to ask yourself, I think, by looking through the lens of your own personality and your own circumstances. Um, I think that we are, we're all guilty of looking at the end goal and feeling overwhelmed sometimes. Starting over is not easy, but we can only take one step at a time. You know, it's like I, I had a really savage quiet spell last year which ran for about three months plus. might have even been six months, you know. It was a long one. And it left me last Christmas in a point where I was fucking, like, getting, you know, heart palpitations and really stressed about paying the bills because I've got two kids and everything, and, and it was bad. And what one of the big factors was that I just hadn't marketed. Like, I, I just worked for my existing clients while I was a new dad because I was knackered and I couldn't be all things to all people. And because of that, I hadn't promoted, I hadn't stayed in touch with anyone. I, I, wasn't, I wasn't on the scene, I wasn't sharing myself getting myself out there and invariably that eventually brought on this long quiet spell or at least it played a part in it but when i then the idea of like revamping my database and going back on social media was overwhelming because oh my god i've got to start fresh and shit but when you break that down into small numbers and what i started to do was setting myself a target of like five check-ins so five emails to people that i knew or i had a relationship with or five messages on let's say linkedin for example and five new approaches so add five new people and try to start a new conversation in a new relationship on those platforms or through email or whatever it was um 10 a day it was achievable in let's say an hour with a coffee at lunchtime or in the morning you know and slowly but surely, when let's say two, three weeks passed and I knew that I was actually a part of it again and I was back on, I began to get a little upturn in queries and it was like, okay, now I'm paranoid and nervous, but knowing that I'm a part of the conversation, whereas before I was paranoid and nervous without any form. And I just think that the same goes with making new work. Don't look at the eventual finished portfolio and think about what industry it's going to fit in and all that stuff no fuck that start by being excited about the first sketch that you're going to do and really apply yourself to that and try and get in a flow state with it because again that will shine out the work and if you can do that and get excited about the, the, the next piece of work and then the next piece of work and really losing yourself in it what you'll end up with is a just an amazing buzzing vibrant portfolio whereas if you're constantly in a state of stress about what it means and where it's going to go that will also show in the work and it won't be great so you know it's um it's tough but it will all follow it might end up as a book cover it might end up as a stationary line whatever but make work that isn't imprisoned by tiktok ratios or other such nonsense because exploring weird ideas that appeal to you and nobody else is important and they will always find a home and some appreciation and the most unexpected doors will open you know the migration to this becoming the work that pays your way might take time but it will feel amazing each of those steps can be exhilarating the first new commission on your terms 
can be like the gateway to such momentum. So indulge in the patience that's required to build it properly, turn it into an art project again. You know, make your next bus journey or your next walk to the corner shop interesting through the lens of making that new work. Feed it with your life, you know? Like, can you use what I term your dirty energy to fuel your new work? What are you dissatisfied about? What are you pissed off about? What do you want to see, like, what injustice do you want to see corrected, you know? Think about all those things and pour that discontent and that trauma and anything, anything else from the negative emotion spectrum into the work. And it, again, it will live. Um, you know, it was early social commentary work that I used to create that attracted my, attracted my first big-name clients. I got The Guardian through my Versus series, which was um, Tyson versus Thatcher and the Race versus Sex Challenge, which was my discontent that all I was hearing was the fact that Hillary Clinton would be the first female president and the fact that Barack Obama would be the first black president. Both of those things were amazing. But tell me something else. Tell me about the policies. What do they stand for? They're human beings at the end of the day. They're not just what they are in terms of gender or race. So... It was this cheeky little kind of naive illustration, but that packed a lot of punch and it really sang to Roger Browning, who was the design director at The Guardian at the time. Then he invited me down to London for a coffee. He gave me regular work off the back of it, which led to Guardian sport work and all this magical, wonderful thread. And I've never really stopped on that journey, you know? I did a Christmas card for my clients that year called Seasons Beatings and it was horrible. It was a image of two guys in hoods beating down someone in an elf costume full on there was blood in that image it was it was pretty dark um but that's what was happening in preston at the time there was a series of of random attacks of people in the street and which was horrible and it was in the news and i wanted to channel that fear that i was feeling about that incident those incidents into a kind of aggressive piece and i made that my christmas card that year you know but what a way to sort of stand out and, and get into people's thinking it wasn't great the work was new i was learning my process but we're always learning so fuck it you have to go with what it is now you know but steve you're not going to be in that position because you're a professional and you've got form and you've got portfolio and you've got vastly more experience than what i have then your challenge is to unlearn what that experience has instilled in you now you know you talk about validity of personal work it's absolutely valid but something along the way has made you believe or question that it might not be valid so I would say stop looking around, stop listening to the industry and, and like people's experiences and just use your heart and your feelings to make work. That will work, trust me. Um, I think one consideration in for you to take now if you are going to have a big reset is the opportunity to reset with automation on your radar. So I don't know if you heard episode 194 of the podcast, but it was my kind of personal artist audit in accordance to AI. I was worried, you know, I was worried that suddenly my line drawing was going to be very easily replicated, which I'm sure it can be. But my conclusion was that it was all the human aspects of my work, like this podcast and uh, live interviews and mural artwork, that was going to be the safest. So if you're going to have a big reset, I would encourage you to think about the humanity in your work and lead with that stuff, even just on that basis of automation. I've rambled long enough. I hope there's something of use for you there. I think this is a format that might have some legs moving forward. So listeners, have you enjoyed this? Is this a format you'd like to see continued? If so, ping me some questions. I will pick one to do long form on the next version of this episode and I will continue to answer some of the more bite-sized questions 
at the top end of the show or the back end because I think it's fun I want more audience interaction I'm trying to grow this show so I would like you guys to be a part of it so let me know your feedback Steve I would especially love to hear from you have I helped in any way I hope so if not let me know why not and what you would have preferred to hear I'm cool with that I want to kind of get to a place where I can credibly help people in this regard with creative problems um cheers guys thank you for listening that was fun I kind of enjoyed that little ramble probably repeating myself about 50 times but again it doesn't matter it goes back to what I was saying about Steve's work I'm new to this format of podcasting so I'm gonna I'm gonna trip up I'm gonna ramble I'm gonna make some mistakes but I'm sure there'll be a few good things in there too and if you guys tell me what they are then I can bring those to the forefront and share you know shape it accordingly Anyway, there we go. Big thank you to the founding supporter of the show, Illustration X. As ever, on board, check out their global range of illustrator and animator portfolios now, illustrationx.com. Go back and listen to any episodes from the history of this podcast. (laughs) They're all good. Big ones coming up. Tom Hodgkinson, founder and editor of Idler Magazine. We're talking about downtime and idling and getting back to a place where our lives can be more fulfilling and not driven by this thousand miles an hour balls out existence that we all seem to live in at the moment. Oh, there you go. So that's coming up. Uh, who else have we got? We've got Alex Pask, who fought as a judoka for GB judo team and uh, and all this stuff. He's, he's just amazing. We're talking flow states in fight sports and immediacy. It's a deep one. It's a good one. Let me know if you want to be on the show. I'm open to pitches. Tell me who you'd like to hear from if it's not you. Speaking to Stefan Sagmeister next April at Off Festival, I think there are still tickets in Barcelona. It is amazing. I went for the first time last year as a speaker, and it's such an incredible energy at the Design Museum in the heart of Barcelona. It's a cracking festival, and you come away with the bit between your teeth, inspired by all new fresh ideas. So if you're feeling like Steve feels at the moment a little burned out by his work I can recommend nothing better than getting to off festival just get to some festivals get to I'm going to be talking to Luke Tom uh, Luke Tong and Daniel Alcorn from Founders of Design Birmingham they're going to be um, coming on the show in January very excited to talk to them we're going to be talking about that kind of environment and the need for uh, interpersonal social interaction when it comes to our creativity big episode there coming up too so have a wonderful christmas merry christmas guys last show of 2023 thank you so much for listening you could really help me by dropping a little subscription or a review on your preferred podcast platform over the christmas holiday if you have the time to do so it really helps me grow the show got so much coming up next year so much going on with a new book coming out very excited but also slightly daunted but there we have it merry christmas guys and happy new year and i'll see you in january nice one take care